Welcome to Doc Student 101, a podcast where we discuss the necessary skills and unique challenges of doctoral education with your hosts, Dr. Lania Rademacher, Dr. Peter Williams, and Dr. Scott Self. Hey, you guys. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, well, uh, Peter, say good morning so everyone can hear how salubrious your voice is. Good morning. Thanks for <laughs> post-nasal drip. That's beautiful. Um, hey, Linnea, we have a guest today. Why don't you introduce our guest for us? We do. Our guest today is Jason Titus, a PhD graduate of Texas Christian University, um, the sister university, I, I call it to Abilene, um, here in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. And um, I met Jason online through the Action Research SIG, um, which I'm chair of right now for American Educational Research Association. And um, Jason um, wanted to volunteer to be an officer. And we started talking, he recently, this year, this year, last year, completed his, his PhD. And so when I realized he was right down the road for me, we decided to meet for coffee and talked a bit. And I said, you know, I think other listeners would enjoy hearing about your experience from a land-based university, also a faith-based university, and what it was like to do a doctorate there. So that's how we came to each other. That's awesome. So Jason, uh, what do you wish you do when you started your doc program, having finished it? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I think, just to put some listeners to ease, is one of the things I wish I knew is that it's okay to not know it now. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's supposed to be a journey um, to me and, you know, even to my cohort members or whatnot, the colleagues around me, like we all were changed by the experience, but how we were changed was not predictable. Right. And so to try to predict it kind of seems, you know, a little futile. And so like, I would just say like, really be willing to enjoy the journey and be willing to experience change in a couple of different ways. Right. Um, I think while a, for me, my PhD is in, in curriculum studies here at TCU. And so it does a good job of both allowing me to hone in um, to impacts and, you know, pedagogies that are causing both joy and harm, right? But also to kind of meta out um, and seeing a much bigger picture. And to do this both at the same time is one of the ways that I at least experienced a whole grade of growth. Um, and allowed me to know that some of the people, even that are teaching you, while they have some expertise in the area, may not be the expert in the area because they may actually have a completely different focus. And so you get to learn together sometimes, even with your professors, um, which I think is, is cool. But, you know, as you go through, you're oftentimes conditioned to believe the person in the front of the room is all knowing. Um, and it's OK that they're not. Matter of fact, I preferred it when they were willing to really open up about the things that they were still discovering or had experience with, but, um, you know, some setbacks in or whatever the case may be. Um, and so I think that's probably the the biggest thing is, is giving yourself some grace in there um, and just the recognition that it will change you. Um, it is not prescriptive with a whole bunch of answers that you're just getting through and checking a box each time you hit a step. Um, it is somewhere in between a constructed curriculum and a choose your own adventure. Um, and I think living that journey out, um, at least for me, caused a lot of joy, a lot of growth, um, and made you know a lot of changes to how I think and who I am. Um, but at times was was very scary, particularly in the dissertation and, and comp exam phase, 
where like you're, you've been conditioned your almost entire life to be in a class and to be able to, to digest things and put it back out into tests or papers or whatever. And here you are, um, you know, my, my chair, um, Dr. Gabriel Huddleston, who's absolutely phenomenal. He, the way he described it before I got started is you're going to feel like you're falling out of a plane. Um, and he's like, and like, I gotta let you, right? Like it's a part, it's an important part of the journey. And obviously he was there to help me Dr. Fran Huckabee here at TCU is also absolutely incredible. Dr. Sarah Quebec Fuentes, a guide as well, who is awesome and, and someone who's really knowledgeable in action research. Um, they're all there to help me, but I was free falling to find my find my focus, to find my methodological purpose and, and who I was going to be through my research and publications. Um, and it was very valuable in the end, um, but can be very anxiety ridden um, through the process. And if I would say if you're experiencing nervousness or anxiety in your program, you're probably doing it right. Um, but at the same point in time, I feel like this, for me, this journey has been more about momentum and keeping my momentum going forward and, and not about perfection because half of what, to me, getting a, my PhD particularly in is the recognition that there is no perfection. There is intentionality, there's intent and impact and those things are different. Um, and if you can, push, keep, continue to push forward in this marathon of learning, um, you'll be successful. Um, it's not about necessarily being the smartest person in the room. It's about being the person that's willing to keep going. That was a great launch to this discussion. Um, I like the metaphor of journey. <clears throat> I like that because it's very individual and it's very unique to um, each person but it's also kind of nebulous. So I guess my first question to you uh, beyond the opening is, um, so journeys are, in my, in my experience, are both exciting, adventurous, uh, have a lot of flat tires. I'm just thinking road trips, <laughs> just took a road trip. Um, flat tires, car trouble, the car dies, you run out of money, you, you don't have any food, you don't have a map, you're lost. So go into that a little bit deeper and talk about, um, talk about some of the challenges. And, and I don't want to say negative because the challenge isn't always negative, but talk about a specific challenge that might uh, help some, one of our listeners. Yeah, so to provide a little context to my story, um, so I also work at TCU. Um, as um, an associate director in housing. Um, and I was assistant director of housing through most of this period, right? So I am employed at TCU while doing my doctorate at TCU. Um, I have, um, you know, my incredible wife and a two-year-old and a five-year-old at home. Um, and, and one of the things I would say that's probably the primary challenge is the recognition that I'm not the only one on the journey. And so like, I may be the only one in class and I may be the only one writing these papers, um, but as I was navigating early on, I kind of entered in classes if it was kind of like, I don't know, the Jason show, I suppose, of like, what am I going to do in class? How am I going to learn? And it becomes really apparent that um, in my path or along my path is the people I care for through my job, but especially even more my family. And how do I try to remain present, right? Like, how do you think with criticality towards, you know, the praxis or the, the practice of, of educating while you're spending time with your two-year-old, right? Like, how do you do these things and be able to be present in multiple spaces? And I got better, but I would say that was probably the biggest challenge is that, um, you know, you're always pulled a different direction. 
Um, and as much as it would have been for me, very nice um, to be able to just be a, a PhD student who maybe has a TA or a you know, graduate assistantship. Um, my story is working full-time, going to school. The way that we do it is, um, you know, six credit hours, to cl two classes each semester. I would take that in fall, spring, and summer. So I would always be in, in two courses to be able to equate myself into a full load each uh, year. Um, and, and that was rough and that was difficult. Um, and it's part of the reason I make the statement that you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You have to be the one that wants to keep going. Um, but not just you, your support system, you know, the people that, you know, even if you're at a distance, right, you're not on the site of your university, likely there's loving people around you or people around you who's your support structure. Um, hopefully they're willing to continue on in the journey too, because it's going to be important and it's going to be an investment. Um, but I think there were times where, um, you know, my five-year-old will look at me, he's like, you're going to TCU again? Right? And I'm like, I'm sorry, buddy, I got to go to class. He's, I'm like, just like, you go to school, I go to school. And, and he understood, but at the same point in time, he's a bit happier now that that's not happening. Although recently he did tell me, he was like, daddy, can you go back to TCU? Just maybe tonight, because um, he gets a little iPad time when I was in class that he doesn't get now. And so he's trying to convince <laughs> me to go to go to class tonight so that he could jump on that iPad. Um, but unfortunately for him, we just got quality time instead. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I can, I don't know about you, Peter and Scott, but I can resonate with that because my kids were, when I started the doctorate, were between two and 14. And uh, I, you know, one in ballet, one in soccer, one in wrestling. I'd, I'd print out my articles to read and go sit at their practice. And, you know, you find a way to make it work in balance and it's not always happy for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh, my my stepson was a lot older. He was in he was living with us and in, in high school. But at, at, uh, in that case, I felt like it also gave me a chance to model for him um, some things that I th I thought were for me were valuable, like um, because I I think he saw me struggling <laughs> from time to time, and and I felt good about that. I felt good about him seeing me struggle. I felt good about him seeing me sleepy um, or staying up all night to do something I needed to get done. Because uh, my office, my my home office was right next in, in the room, right next to his room. Uh, and so we, we were kind of, we were buds uh, during that time because our doors were open and we're talking back and forth to each other. But I, there are some ways in which I think modeling can be a real advantage. I don't know about with younger kids. I don't know if they can understand that modeling, but if your kids are older, I, I definitely thought there was an advantage and I don't mean modeling of go, of being a student. I mean, modeling of some other stuff mm -hmm. of kind of perseverance, um, of, making hard choices. Yeah. Yeah. And then just the truth of a kind of a vulnerability with him too, that I thought was, was valuable. I don't know. Yeah, I kind of I kind of hoped that it would be the academic modeling because I do love school. My my second child was 11 when I started, excuse me, and was a senior in high school when I finished. And so when I defended my dissertation, I made him go because he was <laughs> if he's listening, he will never listen to this, but he he was struggling in school when he was a senior. Thinking that it would like, you know, promote him to to work a little harder and the eye rolls were big with that one, let me just say. But uh, I do think the modeling of perseverance, of 
of delayed gratification of the choices that you make, of loving reading, loving uh, learning, being frustrated with learning uh, and normalizing those things um, it, it, with your spouse, with your partner, with whatever, with family members. Um, I have a really supportive spouse and a really supportive uh, father and mother um, at the time who in their own ways would uh, find ways to pitch in, you know, and can you talk about that a little bit, what it was like for the extended uh, circle that you might have? Yeah. I mean, for me, at least in the, in the beginning, the person that carried the most weight, uh, my incredible wife, Annie. So she time and time again, I'm off to class. And, and so then, you know, she's, you know, parent only where like our systems are typically we're, we're there together. And so um, I think she kind of wore the brunt of that. Um, anytime family would come to visit, um, we have some family about an hour away. They would pop over for really important things um, to be able to help support. But really, like for most of my family, the big thing was just, um, you know, calling and checking in. But um, <laughs> they always wanted to hear what I was doing. But I could tell they were never quite putting it to memory. And and part of the joy or the curse of getting a doctorate, right, is like you're stepping into a level of sphere that, a lot of people like either don't understand or, or don't really care to understand. And that's okay. Cause it's like your area of joy and expertise and, and, and whatnot. And so I got a lot of like a lot of questions, but then the next time we would talk, obviously um, they weren't living it out the same way I was, but I still appreciated the support of the questioning. Um, and I thought that was nice. Um, one of the, the interesting ramifications for us um, is that, so, you know, the pandemic hits of course in the middle of this for me, um, and so COVID strikes, everything goes online. That was my last um, semester of class that the classes got shifted online. Um, and, and for me, one of the things that happened is all of a sudden my kids thought it was not just normal that I'm going to school or at least my list, um, but they helped convince my wife to go back to school. So for a period of time here, she's getting her master's in data science or applied data science right now. And so like part of her motivation to go was not just her, but it was also like my kids thinking like, it's, yeah, it's totally normal. Right. It's totally fine. We'll, we'll get new t-shirts from a different school because hers is online and we'll take pictures for it. Like it kind of normalized a lot of those things for him. And when I came home, I work in housing. So there was never really a time that I was always home because we always had students on campus, but I was home a lot more. And so they got to see not just me um, learn, but they actually, there was times they're in the, in the room with me while I was teaching. And then during my, my research process, um, you know, my son would be playing in the, with his Legos right behind me here in my office, um, building stuff, listening to me conduct my research um, with my, um, the group of incredible students and staff that I did my um, participatory action research with. And so he got to listen to all of that stuff. Um, and so I think it endeared him to TCU a little bit more. I get a lot of go frogs around my house right now. Um, but it was definitely something that um, I don't know that the kids experienced the weight nearly as much as, you know, my wife is really the champion of the story here where for long periods of time, you know, I would leave and then my focus would be somewhere else when I would get back until I could like kind of reform. So it is nice that she's getting that experience as well. And, and now she gets to go and, and have those moments and be in class. And I get to repay the favor for at least a few more months. And, and then we'll both be done, for her, which will be nice. I think that um, the change part of that is, is not just about how I changed as a doc student or you changed or any of, but also how it changed the family dynamic. And um, my, my chair used to 
say to me, a lot of couples split up when they're doing this uh, because it's really hard. And I know I was in it for six years and I know that it was a huge change for my husband. You know, he's older than me, very traditional. And so there was a lot more childcare responsibilities that were put on him cooking, mm-hmm. which, you know, the kids learn to eat whatever he, <laughs> whatever he made. Um, and, uh, and he worked full time. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I was gone overnight, uh, because my university was under miles away, then everything was on him. And I was very cognizant of that. And so was he and it, it really caused a change or it was the catalyst for change in our dynamic as a couple, as well as as a family. Yeah. That's an interesting point. That part of the, the, hidden curriculum is changed relationships just that we could follow that theme sometimes deepened sometimes just kind of shifted and sometimes broken right and they and a lot of times in my work with change theory like they talk a lot about the beginning of change isn't actually the start it's the end right so it's the end of the old before it becomes the beginning of the new right and, and i think you know while my you know marriage didn't necessarily experience that and my relationship with my family and kids didn't experience that. I experienced that with friends, right? Like when, when you start to really do, you know, we talk about hidden and embedded curriculum. When we start to really look at who's the curriculum for, why does it exist? Who does it, you know, bring in, but also who does it intentionally or unintentionally exclude? And if you know it's unintentionally excluding things, how are you making choices to not reverse it? And if so, then what's that rooted in, right? Um, so a lot of structures of power, a lot of, 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 things that like I was already aware of, but have dove in so much deeper in. So I work a lot in spatial theory and, you know, Catherine McKittrick talks not just about, you know, the place in space, but also the embodiment, like your body's place in space and what that means for her as a a black Canadian woman. Right. Um, And when you're in that work and you're really learning about those things, um, I'll be honest is, is that like, you know, I have a pretty open mind to my friend group and and I feel like I'm, I'm pretty willing to really listen to others and love others. Um, but all of a sudden you start to hear kind of the voices of the oppression in your own friends. And, and I think that was probably one of the things that was harder for me is that there are some friendships I've left behind um, and that my beginning was really the ending of some of those friendships, because as I look back, like, I mean, obviously still there if they need me and willing to, to chat if they call, but like, you know, I had more than enough intentional conversations of, do you recognize the harm that you're causing by X, Y, and Z? And I'm not asking you to go into the street per se and be the, the biggest advocate in the world, but, you know, at least mitigate your harm. Um, and if they're not willing to do that, then it kind of changes how I viewed the friendship. Cause I would have said me and my friends are people who do not cause harm, cause love, joy, care, like that's who we are. Um, and then when you all of a sudden start to realize some of them, some of your family members that are much more extended, are intentional in their harm. Well, that, that changes the dynamic of how you view that collective, you know? Um, I'll say as a, well, Peter hired me uh, to teach in the doc program, which I'll, I'll be honest, a, a Peter. A great su- decision. <laughs> it surprised me at the time. And the reason it surprised me is I, I got hired to, into a doc program on leadership and I had zero hours of leadership. <laughs> um uh, I would I argue. Some, I would argue that's not quite accurate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but the truth of the matter is that in so many instances, as I was working with students, I'm reading some of the things they're reading for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was a fellow student with them and discovering mm-hmm. with them. And so when you were talking about your professor doesn't always know everything, I'm that guy who doesn't know. <laughs> 
everything for sure, right? And uh, and it, but but this is true. This is true writ large. We're all experts in these tiny, super tiny areas. Um, and so our expertise is not hardly ever is our expertise um, fully manifest in some doc program, but rather um, parts of our expertise are manifest in that doc program. Talk to me a little bit more about your your discovery. I want to unpack this idea that faculty don't know everything and uh, kind of the discovery of of that. I, I, I think I've mentioned it in the podcast before, Jason, but I remember the day I was sitting at a seminar. I can remember the room. I can remember where each of us were sitting. There was eight of us in the room. And I realized, oh, nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> um, and that was so liberating and scary at the same time. It, in some ways, it was liberating. In some ways, it 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 frightened, frightened me to death. So talk to me a little bit more about I don't want to unpack that with you. Yeah, I mean. So I had a similar experience, slightly different is, um, and that was in my master's program, but I took some doctoral classes when I was out at the University of Pacific. Um, and in it, my professor was asking the question is like, is there any such thing as, as dumb questions or stupid questions? And of course we're all like, you know, student affairs-y kind of folks. We're like, no, every question has value. Um, and he was like, bull, but essentially what he said is like, no, like there are like, a question that doesn't ask questions is a stupid question. And he, we, we talked almost the entire class about the importance of asking questions. And the way he closed the conversation was it's important to ask these questions because answers are variable. They're subjective. Like we think about them as fixed. Like this is the answer. Like we attribute math to art, right? And we attribute science to art, but even science and math adapt over time because those, those answers aren't fixed. And so when you start to get into these, especially like really heady conversations, it's more about figuring out how do you ask the question that asks questions. So for example, it's not a yes or no type question because that gets you almost nowhere. It's a, what does this mean to you? How do you feel about, right? Um, and for me, one of the, the coolest ways to, that I've, I've been able to do this a little bit is, so my application theoretically for my dissertation is, um, kind of this intersection of curriculum and space and place, um, critical spatial analysis, right? Well, it is quite literally being, you know, constructed during my time in my program in many ways. It's not, you know, uh, critical geographies has been around for a long time. Dr. Rob Huffelbein has, has done a great work and same with Dr. Gabe Huddleston and kind of piecing this together over time. But it's not like something that's been here. It's not like a Piaget has been here for like forever in theoretical landscapes, right? it's relatively new. So to know that some of the ways that they're thinking about this is happening real time, like they're the published work that I cited the most for, for them in the theoretics, I mean, came out like a year ago, right? And some people would shy away from that because it's not rooted in, it itself isn't rooted necessarily historically in, in a lot of other people troubling the work, but it's built upon all these arenas that, that have had that troubling, right? And I thought that was really cool to, to chew on together. I have other stories where like, you know, I was in a class that's, you know, teaching, you know, participatory action research with someone that really knows it, right? And then I went to a um, more of a qualitative class where someone was very much an ethnographer, but they're trying to teach you other aspects about qualitative research, right? And if your expertise is in case studies, ethnography, photo voice, things like that, 
you're going to miss some pieces when you're, especially if it's towards a mixed method side, when it starts to bring in the quantitative. And I just so happen to do it, like I run assessments and research for our department. So I have a little bit more knowledge on the quantitative side, though I much prefer qualitative, right? Um, but to know that knowledge, there was times in the class I was like, oh, I don't know that that's actually how that works. Like, that's interesting. Um, and I just have really incredible professors that if there were times I said that they would ask me more questions for the class as opposed to you know trying to shut me down because they felt um, threatened. Um, and so I, I'll just warn the listeners, I have been in places, not at TCU, but in other classrooms where the professors would have felt threatened and would have shut me down because they don't want the student to see that to be seen as the knowledge source. Um, so that's a huge compliment to, to TCU. Um, my very first course here um, was a, a, a reading course. It's about child development and, and reading comprehension and went through a whole range of theories. Well, my master's degree was in student development theory, right? And, and student development and, and higher education. So I've, I've been with theories about person development and student development for years. And so when I went into that classroom, there were times where I was, I felt like I was co-teaching with the professor in a way, and she was absolutely incredible, where I was invited to do so. And I became like her first follower in the class because then these other students would come to me to chew on the thing that she was delivering to the, to, to the class. And it, it was a really cool learning community. And that's the reason why when I teach, um, I teach out of the College of Ed here, if, if there's a student that really grasps it, I kind of elicit them to maybe co-teach a little bit with me, not like the entirety of it, but a little bit with me, because that's just a safer voice to the set of ears that are around them in the classroom. When in that situation, I'm seen as the knowledge source, the power source. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that like, you know, to just really complement my experience at TCU. And I felt like this way at the University of Pacific as well. Um, they were open to kind of the community style. That might be why participatory action research is kind of my, my directions because I've been allowed to participate um, as opposed to just here. Um, I always believe that really strong, really knowledgeable people and especially faculty will never feel threatened in those moments because like they know what they know, they know what they don't know, and they know how to dialogue. And I think that combination is important. I think when people are shutting it down and feeling really threatened, I don't, maybe they're for tenure, maybe it's an area that they feel sensitive about. Um, but those are the, that's been the experience was with the, that style of faculty that um, I probably got a lot less out of the class um, when that's the case. You know, I always kind of go back to here in several of your things that you've said, learning in adulthood, which is um, emotion laden, and it's because we don't like to not know as adults, particularly as professional professionals. And if we're doing our study, uh, our, our uh, doctoral program in an area that's in or adjacent to our professional expertise, we're put in those positions where we don't know what the heck people are talking about. There's new words, new theories, new, new concepts that are difficult to grasp. And you're describing uh, having been with faculty who are willing to not know. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something you mentioned early on in your, in your opening uh, pieces, you're introducing yourself or answering the first question is this ability to not know. And you had that, you've had that modeled for you, but you've also displayed that. So I want to focus kind of on methodology 
So this is one of the difficult things, I think, for a lot of doc programs, particularly in the social sciences that are not laboratory based or or they're not, you know, where you're plugged into a project where it's kind of handed to you or it's an assumed methodology. You come into a program, you're in the field of education and curriculum, and and many of our listeners are in that or related fields where it's come in. Then at some point you decide what you're going to study and how you're going to study it. So could you talk a little bit about how you came to participatory action research? Yeah. So my... My first class, at least in my PhD program for research, was a mixed methods class. And that was actually a really great way to start because it like really laid out qualitative and quantitative and the intersection between the two. Um, and I, that was important because my program is really heavy qualitative anyway, um, right? So quantitative numbers, qualitative, um, you know, personal narratives and people's voices um, coming in. And so, um, but to kind of like, to the fire get that experience right off the bat was good because after that i was having a hard time attributing straight up numbers to people right so the personal experience ended up in numbers which it often done, does in my assessment practices in my my work it, it felt cold um, to me and so when i was really able to pull in the voices and the stories of others it felt warm to me um, and for me to do my work in curriculum studies you know the the, the voices of others i thought was going to be incredibly important so i started to, to I think traverse that way. And then I took my action research class and I fell in love um, with action research. And the real reason I fell in love is because while most um, methodological research approaches try to convince you that you are abstract without bias and separate from the research, um, action research, depending on the style of action research you do, invites you further and further into the study to acknowledge that you, you cannot be. Right. Like there's no human walking around without bias. Bias is a human behavior. It gets a negative connotation because of how it gets applied often, but bias is human. And so to even project and, and state that you aren't starts you off in kind of a, an, an untrue footing. And so once like my ears started to open up to that and started to realize that I could co-construct um, change. Right. I work a lot with students and these days, this current generation is a little bit less about leadership and a lot more about change agency. And I could help them co-construct change. And then I really got into participatory and youth participatory action research, which essentially allows the participant participants to, in some version, co-research with you and gives them this power that you may typically have in as a researcher coming in externally too. And as a big group of people, we get to figure out what the issues are, identify them. We get to figure out what solutions we have for them. We get to take action and, and see what happens from it, reflect on it, and then do it again over and over and over again. And as the cycles, we can build and build and build. And, and to my brain, I'm like, well, that sounds like each semester I live out or each year I live out. And PAR studies take a different duration of cycles. But for me, what we've been able to live out a little bit more is about a semester cycle or a year cycle, depending on our approach, which essentially assumes we're always building off of what we've known before. And so, um, you know, Dr. Sarah Quebec Fuentes and I had some incredible conversations um, about it. And, you know, it just took me further and further into what I think is the most important thing about your methodology that you pick for your dissertation in general, right? Is what do you want to be the best knower about doing, right? Because hopefully you're taking your methodology 
and applying it in different ways to different things as you continue on your research journey. Like I, uh, hopefully you're not scrapping it and starting a completely different one, but you're finding ways to at least apply certain aspects of your structure to other places. And if you ask me, what is the methodological structure that I'm going to want to apply in multiple spaces? It's gonna be action research and participatory action research. I, I mean, from case studies to ethnographies, like those speak to me as well. But in my brain, those are also already wrapped up into action research because the way that I'm asking questions, you know, from open form responses to focus groups that are getting transcribed to, to really just being in a room with my co-conspirators and figuring out a better way. Um, I think all of those things are helpful for me. The other thing is curriculum studies, right, is a lot of troubling what, how it's been and how it got constructed. And I'm a straight white middle class Christian man. And so if I'm going to honestly engage cisgender, right, if I'm going to honestly engage into work of, of creating change socially, I'm going to need to amplify other voices so that I'm not just reifying or reaffirming what's always been. And it, it may be the same solution I would have come up with as the actions that are going to be taken, but I wouldn't know that without bringing in these other voices who have such differing experiences and a lot of worth and wealth in those experiences um, but have been historically excluded from the experiences. Well, now I can use my privilege, hopefully not in kind of a savior complex way, but like my experience to help bring them in and amplify those voices. And so, um, I mean, I could probably go on and on for hours about participatory action research. Youth, like it just really speaks to me. And I know a lot of people who've gone through their program that their methodology doesn't really resonate with them, but it's what got them done. And there's worth in that because the best dissertation is a done dissertation, right? Like there's worth in that. Um, but if you can find a methodology that really speaks to your ethos and who you are, um, I think that that's a great way to not just discover joy, but to know your, your pathway forward. Um, I, I don't always sit you know, where I am and know exactly what my professional pathway is forward, but I know it needs to be participatory. Like I, I know I want to engage others and allow for them to, to engage with me in ways that I'm lifting them up more than I'm lifting my own self up. Like that's true for who I am as a person. It's true in my faith. It's true in, in how I operate. So if I'm going to be honest about that, then I think action research and participatory action research as a methodology is the best way for me that I've found to be able to live it out. And it's not a silver bullet. It can be co-opted, par, and participatory action research and action research can be can do just as much harm as it can do good, just like any methodology could. Um, but I think it asks more of us, at least in the way that, you know, from Anderson to others that have kind of constructed, you know, how to view this and how to work with this. Like, you know, I think about um, the work from Brown, work from other universities that have come through, like it's all asking us to be better, um, which I like that. Um, but in order to do so, like the big, you know, slap against action research, participatory action research is it's so biased. You're so in the middle of it um, and you're not trying to replicate your res results again because your results are the cycle of your experience. Um, and to me, I'm okay with that because I live in a world where I understand that everyone has bias anyway, um, but not everyone lives in that world. And and you talk to someone who's quantitative and really staunchly quantitative, they're, they're gonna have some words about some of those things and I feel okay defending those words. So I think you may be one of the only folks we've talked to that speaks about uh, finding joy in your methodology yeah, but I like it. I like it. Let me talk. To, let me talk a little bit why why this resonates with me, uh, Jason. Is I I want to be careful. I, I've said this before. I want to say it again. You're not a better person because you got a doctorate. 
and you're not an incomplete person before you get it. Um, but it's okay to let that also uh, form you. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond just your your intellect or beyond just your vocation, your 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 work, your scholarship, but into a sense of vocation or a sense of um, improving oneself. And I, I found the same thing. My theoretical framework was self-determination theory, and I find it coming up over and over and over again. And I'm going to use the word blessed. I feel blessed by it. I feel, I feel like I grow by it. And that doesn't, I, I'm not sure that happens for, for everybody in their theoretical frameworks. Uh, and I'm sure if you're not in the social sciences, it might be harder. Uh, but I, I do want to, I do want to kind of celebrate with you that experience of knowing oneself a little more intimately, uh, understanding oneself a little bit more intimately or one's neighbors a little more intimately. That's, that's not a bad outcome if you can get it. <laughs> it's a nice work if you can get it. It's, yeah, we, we have <clears throat> conversations often about separating your works and your worth. Right. And I think what you said on the beginning side about, you know, like, so I defended, you know, they announced me and I felt no different from that. So my construction of difference has really been the, the journey towards not the moment of, um, and I don't know, like, you know, there's maybe other moments where that changes for me, but I, I think that's important because so oftentimes, you know, one of my classes was neoliberalism. And, and I think this is a, a something that happens because of neoliberalism, but we attribute our worth to our works. You know, if we, the money that we make, the, the grade that we get, you know, all of those things are not indications of our work. They're indications of our worth. And that's really problematic. And that is something that will eat you up, eat anybody up. Um, and I, so I think it's, it's important to note that, you know, I have someone I'm thinking of right now that it's taken them a long time to get there to be done. And for me to have gone through so quickly, um, we had a conversation about how like uh, they felt like that caused them some emotional harm. And I had to remind them like, you know, like this is not about your worth, like you're of worth regardless. Like you're an incredible human being, like you're an incredible mother, like look at all these things that are wonderful about you. Right. But what, what's your capacity of work right now? And how do you keep moving forward? The momentum part, right. Whether or not you do it in three and a half years or eight years, regardless, keep the momentum going forward and finish and you'll have done it. Um, and I think that's the the piece that we, that a lot of people struggle with, especially like, my, I mean, I work with a lot of students that are in the master's degree programs and undergrads as well as this attribution of, of it is my worth, right? Because the other thing about a PhD or an EDD or whatever the case may be, just because you get your doctorate doesn't mean like there's an, an, a ready to be sent email that as soon as you're done comes to you that offers you that next like opportunity or job with a huge pay increase and all these other things, right? it's the industries don't attribute it into your, your worth per se, right. In the way that they're, they're trying to bring you along. They see it as something that goes on to your resume or CV. Like it's an aspect of your work. So don't bring that over to your worth on your own. Um, And I think that could be hard because there is a bit of ego in the sense of you're also doing it because it separates you. You're also getting this PhD um, because it's important and, I mean, I have, I got my PhD and I had friends from high school reaching out that I've never, haven't talked to since high school that are just like, Hey, how's it going? Want to hang out? I'm like, I live across the nation now from you. Um, but the only reason they reached out to me is because I got a doctorate and not many people around where I'm from had their doctorate. So there's some 
notoriety that comes in there um, that also wants you to say, hey, this works is tied to my worth because now that makes me have more worth. And to that, I would say, please don't do that. Um, just recognizing you're much more equipped to do your work. Um, and then you can find worth in some of the other areas, I think is a much healthier way um, to approach it that uh, that will keep probably you more balanced, more likely to be that you know faculty member or staff member who's willing to co-teach, um, but also keeping you away from being deconstructed by people if at any point in time, I mean, there's always the, the thing where what is present now is obsolete later. So you, my theoretical landscapes and the things that I've applied to my dissertation, some of those things could, could be on the outs in 10 years or 20 years. And so then I will have to navigate what that means for me academically later on. But, um, you know, so I think just disassociation of that work and worth is just really important, I think, to me in a lot of the conversations I have. Thank you.